Welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. Hello, this is Simil Parikh one of the hosts of the Accelerators podcast. I'm medical director at the Lake Huron Medical Center, uh, chief of radiation oncology. Just kidding. I don't really have a title other than staff doc. But I'm here today to talk about uh, interesting changes in radiation oncology over the last 17 years. I entered the field in 2006 as a resident. It is now 2023. And let me tell you, things sure have changed, mostly for the better. I'm going to talk about 10 things that have changed for the better, and then three things that I think have changed for the worst. All in all, radiation oncology as a specialty uh, is in a good place. We continue to utilize technology to treat cancer more safely and effectively. We're getting more cost-effective, less toxic, and have higher cure rates. There are some structural difficulties with the specialty, but as a whole, the field is in great shape. The first thing I want to talk about that changed over the last 15 plus years is the shift away from 2D or point dosing to more conformal techniques like 3D conformal and IMRT, as well as SBRT and SRS. What 3D conformal radiation therapy allows us to do is create targets, create organs at risk, allow us to track the dose to both to see how much is covered and how much of the organs at risk are getting radiation. This allows for very good plan comparisons. We can really see what's going on. In the old days, we did 2D treatment planning where essentially we set an isocenter in the middle of the tumor and then made sure that that point received the radiation dose that you wanted to deliver. Now, this did not allow us to see how much of the tumor was getting prescription dose or close to it. And other than point doses, it was very difficult to calculate how much dose organs nearby were getting. In addition, we only had 2D imaging, so it was unclear where many of these structures actually were. I get the sense that docs now have a much better understanding of treatment planning. The relationship between the physician and dosimetrists are quite tight in many cases. There's an iterative process, there's collaboration, and the dosimetrists along with the physician are able to make ideal treatment plans. It's not always going to be best in every situation, but you're able to weigh the pros and cons of a treatment plan and choose the best one for the patient. One uh, hesitation or drawback about the transition is that many younger physicians did not understand 2D treatment planning. They did not get isodose treatment planning. Uh, They lived in a world where they've always had a PTV. I think this creates some confusion between the differences between uh, 3D and IMRT. We've talked about this in other episodes, um, but I think more discussion of this is going to lead to more education and understanding. 
On the opposite note, uh, physicians that trained in the 2D era have not always been able to understand how to treat effectively with 3D. I've done some rotations in dosimetry and I've seen um, the misunderstanding of what the goal of treatment is and how to do it. In any case, the transition from 2D to more conformal treatment techniques has been incredible for Asian oncology and is the backbone of how we treat today. The next thing I want to talk about is safety in general. Uh, Early in my career, there were a series of articles in the New York Times about radiation oncology and safety. There were there were some incidents that created headlines. What had happened was patients were being treated with IMRT with step and shoot uh, technique. Step and shoot technique is where the gantry rotates to fixed positions, and in those fixed positions, the leaves move, creating conformal dose clouds. Now, what happened? Uh, in these articles is that instead of changing the leaves and the fields when it was in the fixed position, the field stayed open. And so very, very high doses were delivered to areas that should not have received those doses. Uh, Patients not only were not cured, but died due to radiation injury. There were a series of other uh, treatment errors, including a wrong site treatment, um, which happens somewhat uh, more commonly than understood. And then um, treatment was delivered to a wrong site because the ISO center was uh, essentially misplaced. The CVCT had been done but no port films had been done to check. And so the isocenter of the CBCT was different than the treatment isocenter and they missed by several centimeters. I believe our specialty is very good at safety processes. Although we've had errors in the past and continue to do so, the field gets safer and safer. We have many processes in place, the ACR and ASTRO, have certifications that do a check of making sure you're doing at least the minimum. Many centers in this country are accredited, if not uh, most. Um, And following these basic um, procedural guidelines listed by the ACR allows a baseline of safety. There's many other guidelines and uh, workflow uh, documents that discuss how to safely treat patients. Uh, Dr. Potters from Long Island, Jewish, uh, had written a paper about their processes, about their workflow, and I'll reference it in the show notes, but following this guide uh, leads to safe outcomes as well. Uh, Astro has an incident learning system in place called ROILS, or ROILS, And this is essentially an anonymous way to discuss errors, and uh, it's not used for litigation, and it's not used for finding fault, but it's used to report errors so we can all learn from them. It's very important we do this. We also do M&M as part of our weekly discussions, and uh, when a mistake does happen, we do root cause analyses. The field is dedicated to safety, and it gets better and better. 
I feel that radiation oncology continues to be one of the safest ways to treat in medicine. Um, and it's, again, improving over time. The third thing I want to talk about is image guidance. IGRT allows us to use either KV slash 2D images or uh, CT slash 3D images to make sure we're treating what we want to treat every day or every week, however often you're going to be scheduling the imaging. I love IGRT. This is, to me, a uh, triple threat. There's three great things that we can do with IGRT. One is for safety purposes. It is nearly impossible to treat the wrong site if you do imaging every day. It is very clear, especially with 3D imaging, when you're on the left side or the right side, if you're in the abdomen or the chest, and it makes it exceedingly difficult uh, to treat the wrong site. This alone is reason to use IGRT often. Uh, tattoo marks and port films are fine, but IGRT is going to be more detailed. Um, you know, why use uncorrected vision when you can have glasses or when you can have contact lines? In fact, why not get LASIK um, so we can see clearly all the time? That's what I think IGRT does for safety. The second thing we can do is reduce our margins because we know where we're at. Uh, there's been countless studies about IGRT and the reduction of PTV margins. The less volume we treat, the less dose to organs nearby, and this makes a safer, less toxic treatment. Uh, the third thing we can do is similar to tighter margins, but it's different in that we're talking about the volume we're treating. The volume itself can be better defined, and we can treat smaller areas. We can also treat components of areas. Um, the old way of treating bone nuts was to treat the vertebra that was affected, uh, plus one above and one below. We don't really need to do that anymore with image guidance. We can just treat the affected bone uh, and reduce dose to the adjacent normal tissue. So IGRT all in all has been wonderful. Now, one of the challenging things with it is the reimbursement and getting prior authorization for it. Um, I think these are Definitely things we have to consider, but at the same time, patient safety first. And even if you don't get approved, go ahead and do it because uh, this underbilling idea is not true. Um, no one's going to go after you for doing something cheaper. And again, it uh, impacts our patients in a positive way. The fourth thing I want to talk about uh, is our shorter treatment schemes. There are both pros and cons to this, but I want to talk about the pros. Uh, hypofractionation for standard treatment um, of breast cancer, prostate cancer, bone mets have allowed patients to get the same chance of cure, but come in much less. We're talking a difference between nine weeks versus two weeks for prostate cancer with SVRT. We're talking six and a half weeks versus one week for breast cancer. We're talking one treatment instead of 10 for bone mets, and multiple other sites of the body can be treated in shorter uh, schemes. This is fantastic for patients. It uh, saves them time. It saves them money. Uh, it saves them inconvenience. It gets them out of the hospital or out of the clinic um, for longer periods of time. Uh, for patient convenience, there is very, very little negative to say about shorter treatments. 
we have SRS treatments. Uh, for example, if, uh, whole brain treatments take two weeks, but SRS can take just one treatment. Yes, the treatment's a little bit longer, but with the mat or another um, volumetric type of treatments, it does not take very long at all. Um, we utilize stereotactic treatments for oligomets. In the past, with oligomets, uh, if people tried to treat them for cure, they would do protracted schemes, like 60 gray and 30 fractions or 50 and 20 fractions. We can do these treatments in one, two, three, five treatments now, um, and it's uh, very important to do these quickly for patients that have stage four disease because their life expectancy may be limited. And even though you think you have a shot at, at cure, we want to do it in a way that respects the patient's time. This is reduced costs overall um, throughout the clinic. Uh, radiation spending has actually decreased over time, and hypofractionation has a lot to do with it. This is almost entirely a benefit. I will talk about the negatives uh, later. Um, the fifth thing I want to talk about is the toxicity of treatments. This has reduced significantly. I've noticed from my beginning of career till now, how much less we have to do in terms of managing adverse effects. Um, with VMAT, especially for prostate, uh, the several-week treatment is much easier on the patient, which means it's much easier on the physician. Nurses that have experience in radiation oncology will tell you in the 90s what it looked like. There was so much diarrhea. There was so much urinary irritative symptoms. Patients really had a hard time with treatment. With modern VMAT, these patients sail through. Uh, when you use conventional fractionation, they may not have any side effects throughout treatment. Um, and if they do, they may not show up until the fifth or sixth week. Uh, MRT is not the only uh, reason we are using SRS and SBRT, which are types of uh, conformal treatment similar to MRT, um, but a similar outcome. We're treating the tumor to a high dose, the external tissues to a low dose, and we're able to do this um, in a way that treats the tumor uh, while sparing the patient from side effects. A lot of this is because of DVHs. DVH is the dose volume histogram. Uh, Ratio oncology residents and most faculty know exactly what these are. Uh, these were new. Uh, we got tested on them a lot and quizzed on them. Uh, now we can all look at it very quickly and understand what we're looking at. But in the past, these were new and um, different and a different way of looking at things. We used to look at max points to organs. Now we had to look at how much of an organ was getting how much of a dose, and then try to figure out what the constraints should be to lower our toxicities. We also have way better medications for side effects. Um, when I was an intern, we would use compazine for nausea, um, and now there's no reason you would start with compazine because Zofran is much more effective, has less side effects, has a disintegrating tablet. We have mometazone for dermatitis. We have all kinds of medications for managing side effects. There's uh, pharmaceuticals. There are FDA-approved, essentially, supplements. There are patient discussions about uh, different side effect management routines. Uh, we are able to treat these patients uh, so, so safely. Um, 
and we have better ways to manage side effects when we have them. Uh, the sixth thing I want to talk about is educational resources. These were very limited when I was starting. There was textbooks. There were a few audio um, for purchase resources. There was Wikibooks, which was uh, created by folks, uh, residents, uh, and community docs. Uh, it was a free resource, and it was incredible. We would search that all the time. It was so comprehensive. It had all the studies. It had basic technique stuff. We had NCCN for treatment paradigms. Um, and that's about it. You had to ask your mentors and attendings and go to conferences to learn things. Over the next several years, uh, people developed many apps. One of the first was RO Toolbox by a, an old friend of mine and a junior resident at UPMC, which um, had many cables and constraints. Uh, it was essentially one of the predecessors of Radonk Review, which is a comprehensive uh, constraint guide, uh, sorted and very easily able to be um, evaluated for whatever treatment scheme you're using. There's eContour, which allows you to practice and review contours for several cases online. Uh, in addition to eContour, atlases exist we didn't have those before now many of the societies create these uh contouring atlases for targets and for organs at risk there are question answer sites like the mednet where you can post a question and answer questions um this is not limited to any sort of expert anybody can answer anybody can ask and they're wonderful discussions online the quad shot is a digest that comes via email four days a week with discussions about uh, studies that were recently reported out. There's Twitter, which is a great place to watch people discuss um, concepts and cases and many other fascinating oncologic uh, issues. You can easily reach people via Twitter. It is a community. There's Student Doctor, where people go through um, cases as well. The kind of neat thing about all these resources is they came from just individuals from the private sector and people that saw a need. Uh, it continues to grow. There are many, many resources um, people are making. Uh, there are educational podcasts like the one we had on our show recently, The Beam, where it's essentially an oral board format. Um, we're in, in an era where you can learn everything online, not everything, but a lot. Uh, the clinic is, of course, your laboratory and your way to see what's actually happening out there in the real world. Uh, but the resources we have to hone our craft are incredible. Um, the seventh uh, thing I want to talk about is how easy it is to collaborate with outside physicians and institutions. Um, in the past, we could try to find a an email or a phone number and try to set up a time to talk to a expert about a case. Now it's pretty easy to search email. Um, you can go through the universities people at work at or the Astro membership directory. You could direct message them on Twitter or the MedNet or student doctor. Uh, and people are very friendly and helpful. This has always been the case, but the access has been challenging. Uh, people make friends and create 
group chats on iMessage or WhatsApp where they can just shoot the shit, but also spend time with challenging cases and interpretations of studies. Some of these group chats are uh, really something I look forward to, to learn from and to joke around with friends in our field that kind of get what we're talking about. Um, these collaborations have allowed me to write papers with people I've never met before. And uh, this is happening all over the world. Uh, voices are sharing ideas. This leads to uh, text discussions that lead to papers, that lead to guidelines, that lead to working groups. And this is harnessing the power of the internet and social media um, for the for the greater good. And I really love this part about our field and how this continues to improve over time. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is just technology gains NOS. When I go to the treatment machine and I see a VMAT treatment, I'm still in awe. Uh, this machine rotates, and within a few minutes, a patient gets their treatment. Uh, if you've seen step-and-shoot IMRT in the past, uh, essentially the gantry rotates to seven to nine different fixed positions um, and then delivers the dose while the MLCs move. Uh, a treatment would take 10 minutes or 12 minutes. Uh, there's movement inside the body. There's movement externally. There is discomfort for the patient. And VMAT makes this so easy. Even with a CBCT, the treatments are barely 10 minutes. Um, and these used to take 15, 20, 30 minutes before. Uh, there's software platforms like HyperArc, where we can treat multiple brain mats in a single session using a single isocenter. Um, you can do similar things with the gamma knife, but this involves a frame and a specialized equipment to do so. With things like rapid, uh, with HyperArc and similar uh, volumetric treatment softwares, we can do amazing things. The plans are beautiful. The patients uh, are on the table for a lot less time. It's so cool to see. Another thing with better image guidance i talked about image guidance above but we are less likely to need fiducials for patients for lung cases for prostate cases for pancreas cases there are situations where fiducials make sense or improve our accuracy but we don't always need them routinely and i find myself getting them less and less we have the rectal spacer which again there's pros and cons but this is a really cool idea where you can separate the rectum and the prostate and make up for poor planning. That's what I always say. The outcomes are pretty darn good without it, but uh, it allows us to even more reduce the dose to the rectum and decrease um, toxicity. So technology in general, I mean, I, I can't even scratch the surface here. There's hardware, there's software, there are, are deep learning slash AI um, apps in development. Um, we are a technology field, we are tech, and we show it, and it's really neat. The next thing I want to talk about is the understanding of billing. I think this is something that's changed. People understand billing a lot more than they did when I was um, in residency, and people want to know about it. They want to know about RVUs and CPT codes and the value of what they're doing. They want to understand the business of medicine. Uh, the beginning and end of when a patient is sent to you to when you finish your treatment summary. What can you bill for? What can you collect? Um, 
what can we do to make things more cost effective? What can we do to make sure that we're getting paid for um, uh, for everything we do? It's very important. Uh, and I love it because uh, they tried to take this away from us. Because the less we know, the more we can be controlled. But the more you know, the more control you have over your destiny. And if you understand what you're doing and how the sausage is made, you're going to have better conversations with your administrators. There's much more transparency of contracts uh, and discussions regarding them. People do this anonymously and not so anonymously uh, in various mediums. This is so crucial. If we don't talk, if we're not open and we're not transparent, we're not going to be able to get the best deals for ourselves. The institutions are not going to do anything out of the kindness of their hearts. Us sharing this data will allow us all to benefit. So I think the understanding of the business of medicine or billing um, has been very good for us. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about that's changed for the better is the intelligence of what we call like the rat on peak era physicians. These are some of the smartest docs we're ever going to meet. I mean, it was so hard to get into radiation oncology back in the day. I'm much more likely to message one of my younger colleagues about case advice. These guys know so much, they're busy, they get it, they're practical. Um, and it's fun. It really is uh, a boon to my career to be able to have these wonderful young minds in our field. They didn't just walk in. They, it wasn't a scramble spot that was open. And uh, they didn't just take the position to become any type of doctor. These people started PG, I mean, medical student year two, uh, doing research projects, shadowing, getting to learn the field. These docs have this deep interest in the field. They really nerd out. And that's why we're getting some of these educational resources and billing guides and all these types of things. Uh, people are really into it. Um, there are drawbacks to being way too into your job, but these uh, workaholics are luckily my friends and uh, they teach me so much. So those are the 10 uh, things that I think we're going in the right direction in our field. And overall, these these are all amazing things that have happened and uh, tremendously have changed our field for the better. Now, there are some things that I think are worse. Um, the first thing is one of the things that I said was good, the shorter treatments. Um, but I put this together with a lesser proportion of professional fees as well, because we're doing the shorter treatments, we're doing them more conformally. And the technical aspect of the reimbursement is what goes up, or at least the proportion of it does. So the doctor fee goes down, or at least the proportional um, doctor fee goes down. In the eyes of the insurers or the payers. And when you think about how much work you're doing, we're doing less work for any given caseload. If every prostate patient was getting 44 fractions versus five, that's one eighth the number of OTVs or weekly managements. If instead of six weeks for breast, we're doing one week accelerated partial breast, um, it's only one OTV. They're not going to have any side effects and there's nothing even to talk about really. Um, you know, when you did six visits with these people, you got to know them. You got to help them when they were sore or getting tender. 
Uh, same with the prostate patients. You became friends with these guys. You spent eight, nine weeks with them every week talking to them. And now you're seeing them once or twice, maybe four or five times. If you go on vacation, you might miss a couple on treatment visits. What happens with these shorter treatments is we don't get to know our patients as well. We may be seeing more consults and maybe seeing more patients, but we're not seeing them for as long of a time. Uh, I don't have these deep, meaningful interactions that I used to. And frankly, it's not as fun. I really liked it before. I liked these long uh, relationships with patients. And of course, they might not have liked it. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I get it. It's better for them to have short treatments. But for me as a physician, I didn't know that we were going to this model of only seeing them once or twice during a treatment. It creates a technician mentality. We've been fighting that for so long, and I felt like we got somewhere with it. But now we're back to the single fraction treatments for lung mats or for lung cancer or for a bone mat or for a brain mat. You just get told by the doctor to zap it and um, so they can quickly get back on their systemic therapy or their immunotherapy. And you're just doing this quick fix, and that's it. You see them, you sim them, you treat them, and you might spend you know, 30, 40 minutes with them total. Uh, as I said above, the payments have changed where the technical proportion of payment is 85% now, approximately, for these high-tech treatments. So the docs are continuing to work very hard and get reimbursed less, while the hospitals or the owners continue to gain. The alignment, the, there's a misalignment of incentives. Um, with fee-for-service, shorter treatments are very difficult for physicians because of how, how much faster you have to run to earn the same amount of money. Um, so this is definitely something I see as worse in our field. Second thing is the destruction of private practice. When I started, there was multiple private groups, single specialty groups, super groups with surgeons and medonks. Um, other ways of arranging your business structure, but you didn't have to be employed. Now the vast majority of us are employed. Employment is good uh, for certain things. It's good for safety and security. It does not always incentivize you well. It doesn't always encourage you to play well with others. Uh, the three A's is a pithy way to describe how a private practice doctor should act. Uh, the three A's are uh, ability, affability, and availability. Um, you don't have to have the three A's when you're employed, especially if everybody's employed. Affable, give me a break. If the patient's coming to you anyway, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. Ability is not really even understood. Nobody understands what we're doing um, outside of the people in our field. And even then, we hardly comment on it. We hardly uh, do any peer review or QA that's meaningful. And that's for another episode. Uh, as far as availability, again, if you're employed and your day ends at 345, um, when that call comes at four to see a consult in the office, you're less likely to say yes. You're more likely to say, I'll see it when I can, rather than send them first thing. Uh, and I think this is worse. It's worse for service. It's worse for patients. It's worse for us because we're not owning our business. We are just receiving it and we're passively um, uh, passively working as physicians. The idea of entrepreneurship and ownership of your destiny has gone away. It's what can they do to you or what 
can they do for you, not what you can do to improve your lot in life. You'll have a boss who's going to have a boss who is beholden to HR and to different committees. And it's unclear whether anybody's loyalty uh, is to the physicians that work there. We used to be the lifeblood of the hospital. And I think it's gotten so much worse with employment. You would think if you're part of the team or part of the hospital, it would be better. But in fact, uh, you're just a cog. Um, and I can see it with administration. They talk much more gently to uh, private physicians than they do to employed physicians because the employed physicians are dependent upon them. Um, Additionally, economically, uh, less freestanding centers increase costs. Hospital outpatient departments are more expensive. Um, when academic centers and uh, large uh, medical centers purchase private practices and convert them into outpatient departments, they routinely get less busy, they charge more, and they're less um flexible or agile than the original freestanding centers that were there before. I've seen this almost every place that I've been to. When the hospital buys these practices, it gets worse. Uh, I don't have data on this. Someone should probably look into that and maybe we can have a better metric than worse. Uh, but they generally get slower. Uh, there just isn't that hunger to continue a thriving practice uh, when you get a guaranteed paycheck every two weeks. So I think the destruction of private practice has especially been bad for radiation oncology. Uh, the last thing I'm going to talk about is how prior authorization has changed. I am not an absolutist about prior auth. I'm not one that says they're the devil or that it's unnecessary. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Fee-for-service uh, leads to very uh, bad incentives for things. And when you get paid to do things, then you do things. And most of us are very good. I uh, do not want it to be implied that I think we're uh, hucksters. No, most of us are good. It's like any sort of problem. It's an 80-20 problem where 20% of the people are causing 80% of the problems. And it creates burdens for our clinic. It is so often now. It was not like this 15 years ago. You, you would take a peer-to-peer -peer once in a while when you were trying to do something outside of um, established guidelines or outside of the mainstream. And usually you'd have a nice discussion and mostly get approved. Uh, maybe not if you were way out there, but it wasn't part of your everyday. Now it's all the time. And you have to think about what the goals of this is. The main goal is to for us to do the right thing for our patient and for us to get paid for that. Uh, if we are too costly, then we have to figure out ways to reduce costs. And that's what prior auth was. Radiation was considered costly. Maybe partly because of prior auth, maybe because of hypofrac, maybe because of the reduced reimbursements, but right on spending went down. Do we really need such aggressive prior auth? Uh, and I'm not saying I know the answer to that. Maybe it plays a larger role than I understand. But there has to be a better way. There has to be algorithms that make sure that most of the things that we're doing that are within guidelines get approved without us having to do extra work. We have to have better guidelines for 
tough cases for oligomets, for example. We get oligomets denied so much, but these same physicians that are denying that would do it for their patients or for their family members. Um, and they'll tell you that. So, you know, I think prior auth needs to be fixed. I don't know that if we have a fee-for-service system, we can call for the elimination of it. There's just, unfortunately, too many bad eggs. So that's my list of what's going great in Red Onk over the last several years and what we need to work on. As I said at the beginning, this is a wonderful and special field. It continues to get better. There are some structural issues. Uh, I do think we have to keep our eyes open and be very careful about the future. I think there's some good people in leadership that are working on things. And overall, I am optimistic. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this. This was fun. It's really interesting for me to think through this, especially after spending so many years in the field now and kind of putting it all together. Have a great rest of the week. 